scene. I bring to you greetings from Good Shepherd Bible Church in Cayambe, Ecuador. There is a unique bond between that church and our church, having now sent two teams to them in the last 10 years. And it is incredible to see how God is working there through Dave and Brenda and other servants of the Lord on their team. Uh, there is an explosion of gospel fruit, and it is a joy to witness. We look forward to telling you about that next week. But Dave and Brenda wanted me to express to you how thankful they are for your investment in them and your committed partnership with them. Not just sending money once in a while or saying you're praying for this or that, but investing in them repeatedly, faithfully for over, I think, 16 years. They've been there in Cayambe, and we've been with them the whole time as far as support and care. So thank you for your work towards them to support them. I really appreciate Aaron and Bruce stepping in for me while I was gone in Ecuador. Thank you guys for your loving exposition of the word. I trust you are blessed by both of those men and their handling of Christ's word. I did have the opportunity to preach one time when I was there. Uh, probably the closest I'll get to speaking in tongues. I even had an interpreter, according to 1 Corinthians 14, so that was good. Uh, but that is really all the further I'll get in speaking in tongues. As I told the church in Kayambe last week, I repeat to you this morning... I am so thankful for the word of God. I love that God's word speaks to every person in every place. I love that God has made his truth so plain that no matter who you are, where you are, what your background is, the Bible has a plain truth that all can understand. I love how the Bible's message means the same thing in Newton, Kansas, as it does in Cayambe, Ecuador. I could stand before believers who did not speak my language and proclaim glorious truths from God's word, knowing it meant the same thing to them as it does to me and to you here. So with the unaltered, unflappable confidence that we as Christ's church have in Christ's word, we turn this morning to one of the greatest texts in John's gospel, John 16, 12 to 15. I know I say every text is one of the greatest texts in John's gospel because the one I'm studying is. Especially, though, as it relates to the work of the Holy Spirit in the world and in the life of the believer, namely the apostles. Last time we were together, we considered the ministry of the Holy Spirit as it related to the world at large. Jesus said in uh, verses 5 through 8 that the, the ministry of the Spirit to the world is that he will come to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now in verse 12, Jesus transitions to uh, from the convicting work of the Spirit to the world to his work to the apostles and through the apostles to us. And this is the Spirit's guiding work in every believer's life. So let's read John 16, verse 12, down through verse 15. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Before we dig into this uh, text and its specifics about the, the Spirit's ministry to guide us, I want to lay before you the, the different ways that the Spirit of God is talked about in the Scripture and the different uh, works that he does in the world and in the life of the believer specifically. In Isaiah 11, the Spirit of God is referred to as a spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. In John 14, 15, and 16, he's called the helper or the paraclete, the one who comes alongside to help. In Romans 1, he's called the spirit of holiness. Romans 8, the spirit of life. 2 Corinthians 4, he's referred to as the spirit of faith. Ephesians 1, he's called the promised Holy Spirit and the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ. In Hebrews 10, he's named the spirit of grace. In 1 Peter 4, the spirit of glory. But the description that he's given the most in Scripture is the spirit of truth. We see that in John 14, John 15, John 16, our text, and 1 John 4 and 1 John 5. Because he is God, the Spirit is always all of these things. 
That's part of his very nature and essence, his very makeup, to be the helper, to be the truth, to be wise, to reveal, to be holy, to be gracious, and to be glorious. He doesn't have to stop being one of those to pick up the hat of another to be that in any given moment. He is always all of those things in all that he does. He is infinitely God in all of these ways, proving himself through his ministry to be those things. But beyond those descriptions, descriptions, Scripture says more about him, tells us what he does, and by telling us what he does, gives us a, a window into his role in the triune Godhead. He adopts us into Christ by causing us to be born again through his regenerating power. He bears witness to our spirits that we are children of God. He baptizes us into Christ, and he seals us as a down payment from God to us or as a guarantee of the full assurance of our salvation. He guards the good deposit that is entrusted to us. He fills us and he produces his fruit out of us by his life-giving spiritual power. He helps us by reminding us of the truth and by further guiding us into the truth. He comforts us in our afflictions with the truth. He indwells us as the good gift of the Father to our individual soul. He intercedes for us when we don't know how to pray or what to say in prayer. He leads us with the truth and reminds us that the truth that we easily forget is what we most need. He produces spiritual character in us by conforming us to the Son. He reveals truth to us and sanctifies us with that truth by renewing us from the inside out. He sets people apart for ministry. He sends them to that unique work. He gifts us with grace gifts by which we are to serve others in the church in our unique role. And lastly, he guides us into all the truth. That is the subject of John 16, 12 through 15. As Jesus in his final hours is addressing his disciples, seeking to, to comfort them, he also stares down the, the shame and the mocking and the violent death that awaits him in, in just a few hours. He knows he has just a few more precious minutes to speak to these men, to encourage them and prepare them and help them be ready for what's about to come. He takes a good chunk of that time to comfort them by speaking of the coming Holy Spirit. As he soon departs, he says, I'm leaving, but the Spirit is coming. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And he says, beyond that, it's to my advantage that I leave so that the Spirit does come. And as we'll see in this text, in large part, that advantage is what we see described in our text. They need to be led into more truth of which they're not ready to hear yet. Jesus must leave so that they can get more of the truth and understand it and apply it and live in light of it. And so Jesus says the, the Spirit must come. That's the necessity of the ministry of the Spirit. He goes on in this text to talk about the nature of the ministry of the Spirit and then the intention of the ministry of the Spirit. Look at verse 12 for the necessity of the Spirit's ministry. Jesus transitions from the convicting work that the Spirit will do in the world to the guiding work of the Spirit to the apostles by telling them in verse 12, I have lots to tell you yet, but you're not able to bear them now. The word for bear is often used in other New Testament texts to speak of, of bearing a heavy weight. It's used in a, a text talking about Jesus picking up and carrying his cross. It's the, the burdensome and heavy reality of something weighing down upon them. Jesus says, you're not ready to bear the things that need to be said to you yet. He knows they're already burdened by his promise to be leaving soon. And so he says, there's more I have to tell you, but you can't hold up under those things yet. So I'm going to send the Spirit when I leave. And what he's laying before them in verse 12 is the progress of revelation, isn't it? That's a theological term, but you know the idea here. God never data dumps his truth into the mind of any one believer or, or any group of believers or to the church in general. He didn't send an angel from heaven with a thumb drive with all the needed information that you, you needed to know from God and give it to you all at once. No, over the course of over 1,600 years, working through 40-plus human authors from all kinds of backgrounds and experiences, all different uh, thoughts about life and realities, he worked through them to slowly, methodically, over time, progressively 
give one revelation built upon another until revelation was complete. And he's saying to them in verse 12, that is not yet done, and you are going to be the agents of the ongoing revelation. The Spirit's going to come to you and speak to you, and he inherently says here, you will write those things down, and they will become Scripture. It's coming, but not yet. Notice then the nature of the Spirit's ministry in, verses, in verse 13. Jesus telling them all that they need to know right now. Instead of that, he says, I'm going to send the Spirit of truth to you. He'll come and he'll guide you into all truth. This necessity of the Spirit's ministry leads to one of the clearest explanations of the nature of the Spirit's ministry, especially to the apostles. Jesus says he'll guide you into all truth, all the truths that I want to tell you but you're not ready for, the Spirit's coming, and when you're ready, he will indwell you, he will remind you, he will teach you, and he will guide you into all the truth. I want to walk through verse 13 and just kind of dissect the the nature of the Spirit's ministry. But before we do that, I must ask you, who is Jesus addressing in verse 13? This is an obvious answer, but one that I think is too easily missed that leads to all kinds of horrific theology. So who is Jesus talking to? Well, to his 11 apostles, right? He's in the upper room hours before his death. He's preparing them for his departure. So then if he's talking to his apostles and he makes this promise in verse 13, I'm sending to you my spirit of truth who will guide you into all the truth, who is that promise to? To the 11 apostles, primarily preeminently, correct? So it's going to expand beyond there. There has to be other texts that help us know that he meant more than the apostles. Well, in this text, he's saying to the 11, this is for you. And this is really important because lots of people come to this verse and claim from this verse that they have received extra ongoing revelation from God through the Spirit. The worst of that, obviously, is turned into cults like Mormonism. But even within the true church, there are folks, I think, who twist this verse to mean something for them that it really only meant for the apostles of Christ. By the way, this bears itself out, excuse me, in the rest of Scripture. So Ephesians 2 verse 20 is so clear when it says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the chief cornerstone being Christ himself. That's what we see fleshed out then in the book of Acts. The apostles preach and testify to the truth of the resurrected Jesus as the Messiah. The people respond to that message with repentant faith and the church is born all over the world, starting in Acts 2, going all the way through the end of the book. These same apostles, these uh, same messengers of Christ or their close associates then start penning gospel records as the Spirit reminds them of the life, the ministry, the works, and the words of Jesus. They start writing them down. And God has preserved four of those for you, inscripturated four of those for you, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He goes beyond that, the Spirit of God does, and takes the life and ministry and words of Jesus and helps the apostles understand more of what was meant by Jesus when he said them. Remember back in John 2 when Jesus cleansed the temple and, and went in and said this is to be a house of prayer, not a, uh, not a place to sell goods. And in that exchange, the, the apostle, John makes the comment that the apostles did not understand all of what Jesus meant until after his resurrection. Well, that's exactly what the Spirit does after the resurrection ascension of Christ. The Spirit comes and reminds them of all that they heard Jesus say, but were slow to hear and slow to understand because they didn't yet have the Spirit. He reminds them, and they start writing things down, led by the Spirit, inspired by the Spirit of God. And so they start penning letters to churches, more than what was inscripturated, but that which had the mark of the Spirit of God, inspired by God himself. They wrote down, sent to these churches, and eventually were added to the canon of Scripture. And on the threat of eternal damnation, the book of Revelation ends with a warning we all must heed at all times, where it says that we ought not add to nor take away from the words of Scripture. So this promise is to these apostles, namely for the development of the New Testament. And so to say that God spoke to you or that he gave you some new word puts you in the position of contradicting what God himself has clearly said on the matter. So how is he going to guide the apostles? And then kind of from that, how does he guide us? How is he going to guide these men and how does he guide us? 
This means that as he guides, he has an intended way he guides. The text in verse 13 makes clear he is the spirit of truth. In other words, whatever he does, however he ministers, he always does it in the truth, with the truth, by the truth, for the truth. His whole ministry is marked by truth. It really is another way of saying that his whole ministry is marked by Christ. For Jesus himself said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Spirit now is going to come along and be the Spirit of truth. So he's Christ's Spirit, dealing constantly in the truth who is Christ himself. So any work of the Spirit is a work of truth. It's marked by truth, unmixed with error. Beyond that, Jesus says that his spirit of truth will guide them into all the truth. He'll move them from ignorance to fact. He'll take the words of Christ and the works of Christ and the person of Christ and guide them more and more and more into the truth about Christ. This guiding work of the spirit is obviously not a guiding work about which the apostles about which house they should buy or what decision they should make on, on which car to purchase or who to marry or whatever down the list we might want the Spirit to guide us to do. That's not the promise of this verse. The promise of this verse is to guide them into all the truth. It's not a, a personal guiding for a longing for a sense of security and peace of mind about a decision. It's a guiding that directs them, the Spirit's work in them, to all the truth, which in turn completely changes them forever. They're never the same after the Spirit of God works in them in this way, which is what the truth always does, right? As the truth comes to impact your heart and change your mind, you are never the same. As the Spirit teaches you, your whole life is turned upside down by that truth. So the Spirit of God does not come simply to give you information, simply to data dump into your brain all that Christ said or did so you can know. Well, he comes as the spirit of truth to produce change in you, to make you different by the truth for the glory of Christ. Truth transforms and sanctifies us. It's exactly what we see as you think about it, and I often reference this because I need to, is the book of Acts. The promises of John always flesh themselves out first in the book of Acts. Think about these men, these 11 men in the upper room. These are timid, fearful, scared unsure, unqualified men, right? Not men you'd want to entrust your greatest mission to. As Jesus is arrested, they scatter and run away because they're so afraid of what is going on. Then you turn over to the book of Acts, and particularly after Acts 2, they become powerhouses of, of holiness and effective, courageous ministry. And what makes the difference between their experience in the upper room and the arrest and betrayal of Jesus even to Acts 1, where they're waiting patiently in the upper room, but they don't know what to do. The, the threat and fear of the Jews around them keeps them behind locked doors. What makes a difference? Well, you know, it's the coming of the Holy Spirit upon them, which then, by the Spirit, are, empowers them to be witnesses to the world about Christ himself. I want to show you a really clear example of that of the Spirit using a church leader to guide someone into truth who, when confronted with the truth, is never the same. Okay, let's turn to Acts 8 with me, would you? Acts 8, just over a few pages in your scripture to the right. Acts chapter 8, this is the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip was a deacon in the first church, appointed in Acts 6 by the apostles, approved by the church. He seems to have turned beyond just doing menial tasks within the body of Christ, caring for the widows. He seems to go beyond that very clearly, as he progresses in the faith and becomes a, a bold evangelist for Christ, showing you that deacons can do and should and must do spiritual ministry in the body of Christ. As he encounters the, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, we see this very thing play out that we're promised in John 16. Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that, comes, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So this ministry is all 
compelled by the Spirit of God, correct? He was told by the angel of the Lord to go. He would then was told while he was going, go there specifically to that chariot and join yourself to him. So Philip ran to him and verse 30, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The Ethiopian eunuch is interested in the scripture. He's a seeker. He knows enough to know that he doesn't know what he's reading. He wants to know. He wants to see and understand Christ. And as he reads the scripture, he's confronted with this this unique man who comes and asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And no, how can I unless someone guides me into the truth? And so he joins him in the chariot. They read together. He reads Isaiah 53. And then he asks Philip in verse 34, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture. Now stop there. Is he filled by the Spirit at this point? Is he guided by the, Philip, is he guided by the Spirit when he opens his mouth in verse 35? Absolutely. Absolutely. He's only here because the Spirit directed him. And he is walking by faith and dependence on the Spirit to help him know, look what he does. Beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? This man heard the truth, was guided into the truth by one of God's messengers filled with the Spirit. So the the, Spirit of truth is working through one of God's servants to guide an unbeliever into the truth. And what happens after he explains it to him? Hey, thanks for that information about Isaiah 53. I finally get it. I'm so glad you ran across my path. I can leave now knowing that I know that text. No, of course not. He is forever unalterably changed, gloriously regenerated, rescued from his sin because he understands Jesus and believes in him, and his life is never the same. This is what the spirit of truth always does when he works. His working has the goal of bringing about radical change in a life. He is not just an information agent. He is a change agent. He bears witness to the truth for the very purpose of bringing about change of heart, mind, and soul. Not only will he guide all of the apostles into all truth, but Jesus goes on to say that this truth will not just be the Spirit's version of truth. This will not be the Spirit making up his own truth as he goes along. Rather, Jesus says he will only speak that which he hears. He is indeed the Father's Spirit and the Son's Spirit, and his message will be the same as theirs. They are one God in three persons with one truth. That's exactly what Jesus has said all throughout John's gospel. I come speaking to you that which I have heard. I have been sent by my Father with this message. I only do the works he tells me to do. Now he says, I'm leaving, but there's another one coming who will do the same thing. He will only say what he's heard. He will only speak the truth. His work will be no different than mine in its content. And to the apostles, this revelation that the Spirit hears will be written down by them and enshrined in Scripture for all of eternity. John Phillips, a commentator, rightly says, the Spirit of truth took incarnate truth and enshrined it in written truth. So helpful. The Spirit of truth took incarnate truth and enshrined it in written truth. Therefore, Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, so clearly points always to the Lord Jesus Christ, especially in the New Testament as the apostles lay before us the life of Christ and then exegete that life for us in the epistles. So this spirit of truth is not giving new revelation that both the Father and Son are learning about along with all the apostles, writing it down for themselves, oh, that was good, I'm glad he said that. No, they're speaking to the spirit of what to say. But he'll also tell them more about the implications of Christ and the applications of what Christ has done. In essence, verse 13 is Christ's pre-authorization of the New Testament. He is essentially saying in verse 13, 
I am telling you, the spirit who inspired the Old Testament is going to come upon you and inspire the New Testament. And the canon will be completed through you men. Not only will the spirit speak only what he hears, but he'll also tell the apostles of the things that are to come. That's the last phrase in verse 13. So you must ask them, what are these things which are to come? What's he talking about? Is he, is he talking about the coming death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus? Or is he looking beyond that to the, the last days and their completion, which is so often the, the topic of conversation in the epistles especially? Paul talks about it. John talks about it. Peter talks about it. Jude talks about it. Over and over again in the New Testament, this coming day is described and exegeted for us. I think the answer is yes. He means both of those things. When he says, I'm going to tell you the things that are going to come, he's talking about the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus and what's to come after Jesus. So he'll come to them and he'll explain to them all that Christ has done from their perspective later. He'll help them look back and understand the meaning of the cross, the meaning of the resurrection, the meaning of the ascension and exaltation of Jesus, and the the meaning and the hope of the soon return of Jesus. And if you just think through your mind real quickly from Romans to Revelation, that is so often the topic, right? The work of Christ to redeem us through his cross work, the significance of his resurrection, the reality of his soon return and how you should now live in light of that reality. So that's what the Spirit did. He came to the apostles. He, as the Spirit of truth, helped them understand all that was accomplished by Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. And then they wrote it down so that you and I don't have to doubt or wonder or question or be led into the truth all over again in new ways with new revelation. They wrote it down so we can have it before us at all times. He will also tell them beyond the life of Christ, giving them the the deep significance of what Christ will do. He'll he'll also explain to them what's going to happen beyond that. So he'll tell them of how the Jews will reject their own Messiah and what that will look like. He'll tell them of the ingathering of the Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. He'll tell the apostles, he'll lead them into the truth of the, the spread of the gospel around the world of the building and the birthing of the church. He'll tell them of the the coming wrath of God and the day of Jacob's trouble. He'll tell them of the eventual salvation of all of Israel. The Spirit will witness to them and through them of the return of Christ and of the great white throne judgment of all unbelievers and of the destruction by fire of the present heavens and earth. He'll tell them of the creation of a, a new heaven and a new earth upon which the new Jerusalem will descend and rest upon the new earth and the redeemed will dwell with God and he with them. See, the Spirit of God, the ministry of truth, will come to these apostles and will explain to them all that is to come. Just take, just think for a minute about the book of Revelation by itself as a microcosm of that promise. Where does the book begin in the book of Revelation? Chronologically. Well, with John in the end of the apostolic age, he's the last apostle alive, about to die. He's in exile. And he has the Spirit of Christ come upon him on the Lord's day. He was walking in the Spirit, and Christ revealed himself to John and gave him a message to write down. He goes from the apostolic age in chapters 1 through 3, and just think through the book, where does it end? It ends in the eternal state in chapters 21 and 22. And so in essence, Christ by his spirit is taking John from his present day to the last day. This is the promise of John 12 verse 13, or John 16 verse 13, correct? I will send my spirit and he will lead you into all truth, namely of the things that are yet to come. Beloved, you, you, I hope, are awed by how consistent God's word is. See the the glory of Christ knowing what's coming, making the promise, having it written down, sending his spirit and seeing that promise fulfilled. Seeing God through his spirit do what he said he would do. It's astounding. This work of the spirit of God is an ongoing work in the heart of every believer. Not in the same sense, of course, because we're not apostles. We've not been entrusted with the spirit giving us new revelation to write down for scripture but in the sense that we've been given the spirit of the Holy One and therefore we have 
all knowledge. That's 1 John 2, verses 20 to 27. He says clearly there in that text that we have been anointed with the Spirit of Christ. And because we've been anointed, we have knowledge that though not all fully and truly understood all at once, we have the privilege of the Spirit in us to teach us. 1 John 2, verse 27 says this, But the anointing that you receive from him, Christ, abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This does not mean, obviously, that we don't have to study or work hard to understand the truth. It doesn't mean that you can just get up now and leave because, you know, the teaching of the word in the church is no longer needed because you have the spirit of Christ within you who teaches you. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text, because other texts say you need the teaching of the word in the church. Other texts tell you to study, to, to prove yourself an approved workman in the word of God, to study hard, to show yourself approved. What it does mean is that you learn and grasp the truth and as it changes you, that that's not the work of some gifted teacher in the church or of some amazing insight you've gleaned by your hard work. When that light bulb moment happens where you understand more truth and it changes you, that is the work of the Spirit of God. And he is the only one who should get credit for that. We all love our beloved Bible teachers that we hear on the radio. We appreciate their ministries, but beloved, any help they are to you is the Spirit of God at work through them to grow you in your understanding and in your faith. He deserves the praise. This then is the prayer of the psalmist. Psalm 25, verse 5, he says, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Psalm 143, verse 10, he says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. You see what the psalmist is praying for there? He's not saying, Lord, give me truth so I can know. Give me more data from your word so I can understand. No, he's saying, teach me, instruct me so that I'm changed, so that I walk according to your will all the day long so that your spirit leads me on level spiritual ground is what he means. Walking in accord with your revealed word. This really should be our desire for the spirit's illuminating and teaching work in our minds and in our hearts. We should want him to to lead us into all the truth. This means that the spirit's leading is is never detached from the, the revealed truth of God's revealed word. He always leads this way. This is the nature of his guiding work. It is a ministry of truth. That's his chosen method, his prescribed method, his revealed method of ministry to us. And so as he, as the Spirit fills us and controls us, one of the first fruits we see when you put Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 side by side, they're sister texts, and as you see the filling of the Spirit rather than being drunk with wine, what that produces Namely, in Colossians 3, is that your, the word of Christ dwells richly in our hearts and minds. One of the first fruits of the Spirit's work in you is to make you be full of the word of Christ. That's, that's, the, the, that's the method he uses to guide us and to lead us. We're perfected and completed as a mature man of God by the word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the word of God is, is breathed out every part of scripture is inspired by God and is perfect and accurate and complete. Why? For the purpose that you can be a completely mature person in God, a man or woman matured by the word. We're given freedom in the truth as we turn to the Lord's spirit to help us behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. That's second. Second uh, Corinthians three, seventeen and 18. As we do, the text says we're transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Well, who doesn't want that as a Christian? That's our, our desire and goal is to be more like our Savior. How does that happen? 
Is the Spirit at work in you in, in ways you don't understand and one day you're just more like Christ than another? Well, he has a very clearly prescribed means. It is through his word, as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we are changed from one image of glory to another. And the comparison in 2 Corinthians 3 is to that of Moses when he went up on Mount Sinai and met face to face with God and came down from the mountain with a changed face. Being with God in his presence changed Moses, but because it was under the old covenant, it was a a change that was passing away. It was a glory that was fading. So Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 3 is to say, you have something far better. You have a glory that doesn't fade, but increases. That doesn't go away, but gets better with time. And that glory is found for you in the pages of Scripture in which you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and are change from one degree of glory to another. So, brother or sister, the Spirit obviously had a unique ministry to the apostles and through the apostles. But his ongoing ministry to each of our hearts is no less astounding. He dwells within you as your resident teacher from above. God, very God, dwells within you, anoints you, and seals you, and teaches you. And so, as we pursue the knowledge of the truth and conformity to the Lord Jesus, you must know that the Spirit of God is delighted to show you more of Christ. This is why he came to you, to be the Spirit of truth guiding you into all of the truth. This changes, I think, our Bible reading and our Bible study. This is not a new concept for you, but maybe one you in your own heart need to return to. Rejoice in and practice. Every time you open your Bible, you are opening the living word of the living God who has spoken clearly and sufficient, sufficiently for all that is needed for life and godliness for you. Not only that, he has invested in you his personal spirit to teach you his living spirit in your living soul to teach and train you with his living word. Therefore, ought not our desire be like the psalmist in Psalm 25, 5, Psalm 86, 11, Psalm 143, 10. Are we not pray something like that before we ever open God's word? Is your time with the Lord stale? Frustrating? Boring? That indicates to me when that is true for me, and it is true for me at times. That indicates to me that the problem is with me, not with God. His word is never boring. His spirit is never absent. His truth is never irrelevant. No matter where I'm reading in any part of his word, there is something there from his spirit to grow me and to inflame my love for my Lord. And if that does not happen, that is not God's fault. That is me hindering the Spirit's work through laziness or apathy or a lack of submission and dependence upon the Spirit to be my teacher. So don't believe the lie that God's Word is mostly irrelevant to your life. Therefore, it's pretty boring or insignificant, but you still need to put in your time. Don't believe the lie that God is distant and disinterested in your life. Don't believe the lie that you can't understand the Word, so therefore you shouldn't bother trying I just need to listen to others who know it better. No, beloved, this is your pathway to greater godliness and greater love for the Lord and greater usefulness to the Lord. It is through the Spirit's ministry upon you by the word to awaken you, to encourage you, to challenge and exhort you, to comfort you and to keep you. Lastly, I want to show you the intention of the Spirit's ministry in verses 14 and 15. He speaks there of how clearly he, the Spirit, has a goal in mind for his ministry. Back in John 16 and verse 14, he says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Beloved, the Spirit of truth is coming for the purpose of glorifying Christ, he says in verse 14. In other words, he will 
come for the sake of magnifying and exalting the Son. And he says he'll do that through a very specific means. He will glorify me by taking what is mine and declaring it to you. And by the way, what he declares of mine is also of the Father's. He says in verse 15, this is not my truth versus the Father's truth. This is our truth because all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, he's going to declare to you our truth, the truth of the triune God, and that will glorify the Son. The Son came into the world, according to John 1, 18, in the prologue of John's gospel. He says that the Son came into the world to exegete the Father to us, to, to make known to us the Father. And now, well, as you see throughout the book of John, that's exactly what he does, right? He's, he's intent in his teaching to magnify his Father to speak often of the one who sent him. But now, Jesus says in John 16, there's one coming after me who's coming to exegete me to you. So I came to exegete the Father to you. I'm leaving, and the Spirit's going to come and exegete me to you. He's going to teach you all things relating to me, the Son, he says. And this will be uniquely magnifying to Jesus. He is glorified by the Spirit's work. So just step back from this text for a minute and Think about Jesus and what he's about to face. Think about how encouraging this thought must have been to his own heart in verses 14 and 15. So our Lord is about to enter the darkest corridor of shame, mockery, injustice that any man has ever had to go through. He's about to be called a liar and a blasphemer. The truth incarnate is about to be publicly shamed as a liar and a blasphemer. He's going to be arrested under the cover of darkness because the arresters know they have no case. But they're intent on putting him to death because they hate him. He'll be subjected to a series of six faux faux trials, sham trials, which will prove to be mockeries of justice. He'll be spit on and hit and have his beard pulled out from his face. He'll be beaten with a whip to within an inch of his life exchanged to die so that a known murderer can go free. Rejected by his own people, forced to carry his own execution stake through the center of the city, drawing the disdain of all who would see him walk past. Stripped naked of every strip of clothing, mockingly called the king of the Jews on the sign above his head, nailed to a Roman execution stake and hung there to die. Forced to slowly suffer the unimaginable agony and pain of the slowest and cruelest of human deaths designed over centuries by the wickedest of men refined to cause the greatest pain and cause the slowest route to death. As he suffers and dies, He watches below him the soldiers barter for his only possessions. And if that is not bad enough, the worst of it all is that he bears upon him the judgment of God for sins he didn't commit. Suffering under the wrath of the Father in the place of sinner. There's nothing ahead of our Lord in the day to come other than shame. And despair, agony, and injustice. And yet, here, hours before that happened, he says to his apostles words that must have lifted his own heart, that there is in the near future the coming Spirit of God who will set the record straight. He will come and witness to what is actually true, and he will glorify the Son through his ministry. Though the world believes nothing but lies about Jesus and therefore heaps shame upon him, the Spirit is soon coming to tell the truth of the matter and glorify Christ. And just think of the New Testament. Think of how many glorious texts there are which magnify our Lord and all that he accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. Think of texts like Romans 6 describing how we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, how we're baptized into Christ. Think of how exalting that is to our Savior to take the 
worst hour of human history and show us the eternal glory of that work for us. That's the Spirit working through the apostles to exegete Christ's shame and therefore glorify Christ. Think of texts like 1 Corinthians 15, which explains and exposits the resurrection of Christ, the great victory run of Christ from the grave into eternal glory. And Paul, led by the Spirit of God, shows us that without the resurrection, we have nothing. But with the resurrection, we have everything. Immortality and eternal life, all because of who? Christ. This magnifies and glorifies him. Think of glorious texts like Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1 and Philippians 2 and 1 Timothy 1 and the whole book of Hebrews. 1 Timothy or 1 Peter 2 and 2 Peter 3 and 1 John 5 and Jude 24 and 25 and the whole book of Revelation, all of it explains to you and exalts before you the glory and the goodness of who? Jesus, the Christ. He is indeed the firstborn of creation. He is indeed the preeminent one in the church. He is indeed over all that he has made. He is indeed the one who holds all things together by the power of his word. He is indeed the final word of the Father on all matters of life and spirituality. He is the exalted son in heaven. He is the returning glorious champion of the world. He is the judge who will have the last word on everyone's life. He is the one who has secured eternal life for all who are in him and who will lead them triumphantly from the pain and the agony of life in the sin-cursed world to the glories of eternity with him in his presence where there will be no crying no more, no sorrow no more, no pain no more, but only peace and joy, righteousness and happiness in the presence of our Lord. Beloved, this is the golden thread which runs through Matthew to Revelation, the glory of Jesus Christ. And you would expect that from the promise of John 16 because that's what the Spirit came to do. So if the Spirit of God is at work, then we can deduce that the result will be in line with these verses, correct? That makes sense to you? Spirit of God has said clearly this is why he's coming and what he will accomplish. So if the Spirit of God is uniquely working and powerfully awakening people to true faith in Christ, then you must ask, what would that look like? What would be the nature of that reality and what would be the end of that reality? You certainly have heard the news reports coming out of Kentucky this week in Asbury College and Seminary. You've certainly read articles, maybe you've watched some of it, been engaged in what's going on there, and we're all excited to see that maybe there's a work of God. Frankly, it's absolutely too early to give a judgment on what's going on, I think. Either way, either to rejoice wholeheartedly that a revival has broke out or, or to pessimistically say, no, obviously it's not. I think time will prove it. Time and truth go hand in hand always. And so the time will tell as it carries on if there is true, truly a work of Christ through his spirit there. But I challenge you, as you hear the news of, of that supposed revival, as you watch the videos, as you read the reports, I want to remind you to judge all things in accord with the scriptures. To test the spirits, 1 John 4.1 so clearly says. There's lots of spirits in the world. There's lots of fanatical works going on that have nothing to do with Christ. There's lots of works of Satan that look like the works of Christ because he's trying to ape what Christ does and lead away, even if possible, the elect. So as you hear, as you read, as you see, bring it back to the word. And ask yourself, what does the word say about the work of God through his spirit to bring about a spiritual work? How does he do that? What does he use to do that? And what will that look like? What will be the fruits of that work? And you, like I've taught you through the book of John, could simply open the book of Acts and read it. And as you read it, look for the marks of the Spirit's work. It really is the, the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, correct? So if you want to know how the Spirit works in the church, 
see how the Spirit of God worked in the birthing of the church. Now, obviously, there's transitional realities in the book of Acts that I think ended when the church was birthed fully. But you can see clear marks of how the Spirit works in the birthing of the church. But beyond that, just think of any passage in Scripture dealing with the Spirit's work and and think, what are His chosen methods? What are His prescribed intentions and purposes? And just taking our text in John 16, we know a few answers, right? He's the Spirit of truth, so His method is always with the truth. And that fleshes out in the book of Acts. When does the Spirit of God work to bring about a great awakening? Acts 2, what happened? They were standing around looking at each other, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God came upon them and it was all different. No, you know what happened. Peter preached the truth about Jesus, convinced them that Jesus, the one they had murdered, was indeed the one sent from God, the Messiah. And they said, what can we do? What should we do right now? And the answer was repent and believe, repent and be baptized. We also know that if the Spirit's at work, he'll use the word and truth, but he'll beyond that desire to glorify Christ. So the result of any kind of God's work in the church to awaken and revive the church is going to be Christ glorified. He is going to be the preeminent one in that work. And so I say to you, judge all reports of the works of the Spirit by the word. He would teach us and want us to do no less. But I say beyond that, don't leave it there. Don't just be a discerning Christian. You must be a discerning Christian, but don't just be a discerning Christian. Be a humble and growing Christian. Long for this work of the Spirit in you this week. It's promised to you here. Take God at his promise. Humble your heart before him when you open his word this week. Ask him to guide you into all truth and to change you for all of eternity. May God help us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for the clarity of your word and the power of your spirit to teach us your word. Would you do that? Would you take what's been rightly proclaimed from your word and impress that upon our soul? Would you expunge from our minds anything wrongly proclaimed by me about your word? And Lord, would you transform and grow your church by your spirit. Also pray, Father, that you would be at work in any among us who don't yet have the spirit of Christ because they don't yet know Christ. Having heard the gospel sung and proclaimed this morning, Father, would you work in them to bring them to saving faith, to humble themselves before you, confessing that Christ is their only hope of salvation from sins. We pray that you would accomplish that for your glory among us today. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.